The sermon text this morning will be Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified." You know, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, uh, he said these words. He said, uh, in this life you will have trouble, uh, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You know, it's, it's the one, um, I appreciate the Christian faith. It doesn't make promises of that you have to have your best life now. It's, there's a degree of honesty with the Christian faith that recognizes the struggle. Um, you know, in, in, in an age of Facebook and Instagram, where we are seeking just to promote ourselves and the great life that we have right now, it, it is uh, kind of refreshing to see the, the integrity of Scripture saying that, no, we will suffer. I mean, historically, that's been the case. Uh, the people have suffered in this experience of being human. But what Paul does in in Romans chapter 8 is he's giving us legitimate hope in the face of the suffering and the weakness that we will have. He does two things in this passage. Um, In 26 and 27, he is encouraging us who are weak, even so weak that we can't even pray. He's saying the Spirit actually is going to come and pray for you. The Spirit will aid you. The Spirit is going to enable you to pray when you're unable to. Uh, So be encouraged, because when the suffering gets so high and and you can't even appeal to God, you'll have aid. And and then secondly, uh, that in the midst of your weakness and suffering, that your Father has purposes for your suffering that are for your good. You may not fully understand it in every moment of the suffering, uh, but it'll be good. It'll be good. You can cling to these two things in a life that will always be marked, touched, or for some, have much suffering in them. So two promises. It's really a a, a simple sermon, these two ideas of the Spirit prays and and the Father purposes. Uh, So look with me in 26 and 27. We'll look at the Spirit prays. You notice how Paul begins He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise is a connective word. He's he's kind of reminding us of what has already been said. I think Paul's just speaking about this continuing ministry of the Spirit, which is aiding us and comforting us in our weakness. You remember last week, he was speaking about the present day sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. In other words, if you're a Christian here, you're thinking about that day. And that day is going to help bring strength to this day, knowing that suffering is only temporary and and, and suffering is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. It helps us 
get through suffering. Well, likewise, Paul is adding to this encouragement, saying, likewise, when you're weak, the Spirit will pray for you. The Spirit will help you. <clears throat> See, weakness is really the, the proper view of the Christian life. We are weak. <clears throat> we saw that, of course, last week with the futility of creation. Now, creation's groaning, right? Creation is not, uh, is not moving in the way that God has intended it to be because of the nature of sin. We saw it creationally. We also saw it in our human, in our human lives, right? I mean, in our bodies, we are weakened. I mean, time does prove that out. Through the graying of hair, the aching of, of our bodies, the 65-year-old man is not as strong as the 25-year-old man is. There's a weakening that takes place in our bodies. Uh, we get subject to disease. Our, our bodies begin to break down. We are weakened in this life. But not just physically, but also relationally. I mean, we know that oftentimes longer in marriage, struggles come up. Problems within our marriage, problems in our parenting. Uh, friendships can go awry. It weakens us. It fatigues us. Sometimes just the, the conflict in your relationships is very burdening. It's very heavy, and it weakens you. But n not just relationally, also spiritually. You know, when tragedy enters your life, you begin to wonder, God, where are you? You know, like, what is your purpose in this? Why are you allowing this to be? It weakens us. And, and, and the pressures of this life move us to a weakened position such that we often don't even want to pray. We don't even know how to pray. I think that's what Paul's saying here, is that the Spirit will help us in our weakness, uh, for we often don't know even what to pray for. He's kind of crystallizing it, or he's kind of, he's kind of collecting it together in this idea that life will press you down, even as a Christian, to the point that you won't even know what to pray for. And sometimes you won't even want to pray. You, you see this often in times of when you don't know the will of God. Uh, some tragedy comes into your life and you're wondering, and I'm, I know you've said this, like, I don't even know what to pray for. I, I don't even know where to go with this. I don't even know how to ask God to help. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I mean, do, do I just submit and say, well, if it be your will, let it be done? Or do I, should I exercise faith and just claim it in the name of Jesus? Whatever I'm claiming, I don't even know if that's the will of God. Uh, we don't know what to do. We don't know what the future holds. We don't, know, we don't know how to handle it. Do I endure or do I seek an escape? You know, do I, do I confront this or do I just forgive and move on? We don't know what to do. And so we're often weakened as expressed through our inability to pray. Or maybe you're in fear. Again, news comes in, you don't know which way to turn. Or maybe it's sin, it's repeated sins that you commit, and, and you don't want to pray because it's like, I've prayed this a hundred times. He can't want to hear me right now. Or, or perhaps it's even just over, you have prayed, and you have prayed, and nothing comes through, and you just want to give up. You want to say, well, I'm not going to keep bugging him. I mean, obviously he doesn't want to do it, so I'm not going to bug him anymore. It's these times that Paul's talking about that come to every Christian. Every Christian faces this time where you feel weak. You don't even know what to pray for. Well, I have good news for you. 
that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is the encouragement to you, that the Spirit of God, you will not see him move with your eyes, but he'll come and he'll help you. Now that word help, uh, that word help is kind of a compound word. Actually, it's three words smacked together, and it indicates uh, someone coming alongside to aid you to lift a burden you cannot carry. So perhaps envision a long log, you know, it's too heavy, and you don't have the strength to carry the whole thing, but someone comes alongside you and lifts up the other end, and you're able to manage the load. The same word was used in Luke 10 with Jesus and, and Martha and Mary. If you remember the story, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, learning as he was teaching. Martha was trying to take care of the responsibilities of the home with food, and she complains that, that Mary wasn't helping her. Mary wasn't bearing the load with her. And so what Paul's saying is when you are so weak, uh, so in your mind, you're so weak, you don't know what to do with your children, you don't know how to even pray, you don't even know if prayer is worthwhile, and, and, but you're burdened by it, that the Spirit comes along to help you. And, and in fact, the Spirit comes to intercede for you. And the word to intercede means to appeal, to, to make a case, like an advocate comes alongside a person that doesn't know how to make a defense, and they appeal for them. They appeal on their behalf uh, to someone of power and authority and say, you must move in relationship to this trouble. It says the Spirit intercedes actually with groanings too deep for words. Now, what does that mean? This is where it gets a little mysterious. I'm going to ask you to, to walk with me by faith to try to understand this. Uh, some people want to just say, well, it just means that you have to pray in tongues. You have to pray in tongues. I don't think it means that at all. I, I mean, this gift of the ministry of the Spirit is given universally to all Christians. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit, whatever you make of tongues, is not given universally. So I don't think it means that. What does it mean that the Spirit is groaning too deep for words? Well, this groaning too deep for words is, you know, you get to those places where you don't have words. You've got tears, you've got groans, you've got sighs, you know, where you're just so burdened, but you don't have the words. The Spirit, I would submit to you that the Spirit joins with us in these times where we are desperately needing redemption or deliverance or healing or hope. When we're deeply hurt or, or we're deeply traumatized, the Spirit joins with us and through our groans lifts up prayers to God on our behalf. He, he lifts them before the Father. When we don't have words, we're inarticulate. Maybe we are just groaning. Maybe we're just suffering. Maybe we're just thinking about the plight that we're currently in. And you haven't even fashioned it into a prayer. The Spirit comes and enters into our groans and lifts them before the Father in a way that the Father hears and responds in accordance with his will. And if you remember, uh, Ahmad came, Ahmad, Dr. Ahmad Shahada, he's the president of Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. Keith just prayed for him today in the seminary. He came and preached this. And I remember what he said on this particular part. He says, it's as if the Spirit purifies our prayers. So even if you don't know how to pray, or perhaps you're just praying wrongly, you're just wrongly in a direction that God does not want you to go. 
that he will take and he will purify those prayers so that they'll still be effective to the Father, and then the Father will bring forth grace and aid to you. Douglas Moo, a New Testament scholar, writes these words. He says, uh, this means that our failure to know God's will or our consequent inability to petition God specifically and assuredly is met by God's Spirit who expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. So when you don't know what to pray for, you don't know when to pray, you don't know perhaps even if you're praying rightly, do not despair because he will intercede for you. He'll intercede for you. So, so th- this is all 26 and 27 are saying. It, it, it's, it's an incredible passage. There's a triune look at God here. Do you see that the Spirit is within you, interceding for you, to the Father who has searched your heart? But if you just go a few verses ahead in 834, it says Jesus is interceding for you from heaven. You see this triune God moving on behalf of his people to help them in their point of great weakness still bring forth prayers that then God will answer to help you. It's an incredible picture of the mercy of God to a people who are unable to help themselves. The the, the way to draw confidence from this is for you, though, first, and let me just make two points of application. You know, I'm just speaking about the Spirit praying for us, but two points of application for you would be that you have to admit you're weak. I I would begin there. We have to admit the weakness that we have. You know, America is marked by self-sufficiency and self-reliance, and I would just say to you that this, this desire, at least in particular with the things of God, this desire to be self-reliant and self-confident, it, it weakens prayer like kryptonite weakens Superman. It, it, it'll take the power right out of it. it, it it'll, just, it'll just drain you of having confidence that, yes, God's Spirit's going to move. There's this need to recognize your weakness now listen, weakness is not just the mark of the new Christian. I mean, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, speaks about his weakness, that thorn in the flesh that God did not deliver. It was weakening him. He, he mentions in the first chapter of Philippians that he didn't even know how to pray. He, he said, I don't know if I should, I desire to go and be with the Lord, which I think is far better, uh, but to stay here on your account is better for you. I don't know which to choose, he says. There are many times in po- there are many points in the Christian life when we don't know what to do. We don't know what to pray. It's a point of weakness. Don't fight that. I would just ask you, what's wrong with being weak? What's wrong with it? We are. Uh, let us at least have the integrity and the honesty as Christians to say, I am weak. God, I am absolutely weak. I'm overrun. I'm overwhelmed. I don't even know how to pray. Wouldn't, that be, wouldn't there almost be something refreshing hearing your neighbor say that to you? Just say that, you know what? I don't even know what I'm doing. God has to help me. There's a, there's a sense of freedom in that. You know, that is the entry to the kingdom of God. You know, when you look at the Beatitudes, the first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty isn't in terms of material. Poverty here isn't even in terms of mental capacities. Poverty is the spiritual awareness that I've got nothing. And I need you, Father. I need you to intercede for me by the power of your spirit. That's what it's calling for. So let's admit it. And, and then secondly, let's begin to pray as a people. You know, the way to tap into the spirit power is to begin to pray. Now listen, I don't have all the answers for you regarding the mysterious nature of prayer. Here's what I know, though. I know that Adam and Eve didn't pray when they were with God in the garden. Prayer did not begin till Genesis 4. It was after the fall. It seems to be, at least tracing through scriptures, you don't see prayer in you see praise in heaven, but not prayer. It almost seems like prayer is the language of the Christian while in exile. It's the language of the people of God to God while in exile, while separated from God. And so let's begin to pray. Now, I know that many of you are weak right now. You've been burdened by issues. I don't know what prayers you have put down that you, you're no longer praying for things. Maybe it's the salvation of a of a, of a spouse that has just gone, gone rogue on God, or perhaps a child that's in a critical situation, or devastating medical news, or financial threat, or relational conflict. I prayer is a challenge, I grant you that. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he'd rather do anything in Christian ministry than pray. Uh, Thomas Shepard, a, a name not known to you, is 17th century American Puritan, he says that sometimes I would rather die than pray. Now, if, if that isn't letting you know that other people struggle with prayer, and, and he, was, he was a minister and, and a very strong one in that, he'd rather die than pray. Sometimes I just don't want to pray. This is when you call out to God for his spirit to help you. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to turn. You don't have the strength to pray. And this is when the spirit of God and I'm asking you, this is really a statement of, I'm, I'm calling you to believe. This isn't a converting belief. This is a sanctifying belief. I'm asking you to believe that the Spirit of God, I want you to trust that the Spirit of God will come and, and take up your burdens and your hurts and your tears and your sighs and your groans, and he'll bring them to God for you. This is the ministry of the Spirit. This is why you should not fear being unable to pray that the aid of the Spirit will come and help you and pray for you to the Father that God will bring aid and grace to you. <clears throat> you know, it, it's, it's like when we were raising the kids and they were young, they weren't speaking, they were one or two years of age. and um, Carol always seemed to know what was wrong with the child. I, I could never figure it out. It was the sour stomach, it was... Uh, uh, they were hungry. Uh, I didn't want to check their pants, but it, it, it was always something. That, and, and, then, and she would just seem to instinctually or maternally, she would just know this about the child. God searches your heart. And God searches your heart, not, not looking to rebuke, but looking to serve, looking to save, looking to help you. The, the God searching your heart working with the Spirit, Christ interceding, that even your groanings and your tears will be rendered as right prayers unto God to bring aid to you. 
There's a beautiful hymn written by James Montgomery. He says, prayer is the soul's sincere desire, unuttered or expressed, the motion of a hidden fire that trembles in the breast. Prayer is the burden of a sigh, the falling of a tear, the upward glancing of an eye when none but God is near. That reduces prayer. We like to think of prayers as these five-minute eloquent presentations unto God, and that is part of prayer. But some prayers are just a falling tear. We had a call last night. A family member been out of drugs and fallen back into drugs. And just had nothing, just sighed, cried, just broken. Didn't have words to put together to fashion a fancy prayer to lift everybody, just God have mercy. That's a prayer. I trusted the Spirit of God to, to know what is on the heart of this person's family. And, and to lift it up to God and say, God, you got to aid us. We are your people. We are weak. We don't have it. Have mercy on us. That, that's, that's the Spirit of God moving. That's God's promise to us. But he has another hope for us in the midst of this weak life that we live. And, and, and that is this promise that God has purposes for us, even in the weaknesses over which we don't know what to pray for. Uh, look with me at the verse 28. And 28 is a, is a classic verse. You all know it, you love it, you've turned to it. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You know, now this verse, this verse has been taken and stretched and changed a little bit. It, it can be misused. It's a gift that can be misused. For, for some, uh, it's handled kind of in a sloppy way, I would say. You know, that is when some Christian has some weakness, some trial, some Christian wants to encourage them in their weakness and bust out the, it's all going to work out for good. Everything's going to be okay. It's all good. It's all good. And, and I would just be mindful that if you have done that or have, thought about doing that just be mindful of the timing and applying that promise there is there is sometimes a a sense of failing to appreciate the hurt that the person's currently in by rushing too quick to want to make them feel better about what god might do with it you know there is the sense of just weeping with those who weep for a moment Uh, you, you need to get to that eventually but but maybe not immediately and then I would say it's also handled sometimes in an incorrect way. That's the way Carol and I learned it. We kind of learned it like, listen, if things are going bad, hey, God's going to work it out for better. And that better meant in this life. So if you lost a job, hey, that's gonna, he's going to work it out better. As if, oh, okay, great, I'll get another job. But it'll even be a better job. So like you're going up the rungs of a ladder. And everything was kind of contained to this life getting better. I don't think it means that at all. Now, those things may happen by God's grace, but I don't think this verse would support it. When he says that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes, I think we have to understand first that all things mean both good and bad. So good and bad. Not just bad, but God does use good things to change us. I would say, and I think this is the voice of most Christians, that that God does his most perfecting work in the more difficult ones. 
But all things include good and bad. Uh, but he says that all things work together. Now, all things is not the subject. Now, in Greek, you don't know what the subject is, but the tenor of the passage is God is the subject, working all things together for good. But how do you define good is really an important issue. And the way I would define good is in the very next verse, he explains it to us. So when you see him say that all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, okay, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew in 29, he also predestined. It's the same group, you see, the same group for those who are called, those who are foreknown. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. That's what all things are working together for, to conform us, to change us, to mold us into being like the son so that Christ would be the firstborn and not the only born, but the firstborn among many brothers, uh, so that others would look like him. See, we're not just adopted into the family of God. We actually begin to resemble Christ, because we're brought through sufferings as he is. He's molding us, he's shaping us. God is that, that glorious, that kind potter who is at his, at his wheel as the clay is turning, and he's pressing, and he's pushing, he's pulling, and he's forming this lump of clay into an exquisite, glorious vase so that Christ will have many brothers and sisters. And many of this pushing and pressing and pulling is through the challenging issues of life, the hard things, the difficult things. You know, just as Jesus learned obedience through suffering, we learn. He, he adapts and he molds and he shapes us into the image of Christ so when he says that all things work together for good, for those who are called to his purposes and for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be adopted as his sons and daughters so that he would not, that he would be firstborn among many. That's what's good, that you one day will look like Christ. You will reflect him perfectly, and it will be from these things that God has worked in you. The promise we have, you're like, well, how do I know this? How can I be sure? Well, he gives us proof in verse 30. Look in verse 30. He gives us proof. He says, for those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. But, but let's, go, let's go one step back. For those he foreknew, that, that word foreknow is just, again, a compound word. It's to know before, that's all. But you notice it says, for those he foreknew. It's not talking about the actions uh, or the choices that we make in life. God knows about those, but that's not what he's talking about. He says, there were a people, for those I foreknew. In other words, before time, God knew a people. He would set his love on a people. For those he foreknew, he predestined. Predestined is, again, another compound word, just meaning he's predetermining the destination to which he will know and take these people, which is the conformity to Christ. So for those he foreknew, he predestined. He set as a destination, you will look like my son and be with me forever. And for those he foreknew and those he predestined, he called. Now, the gospel call goes out, this call to believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, but this call is an effectual call. 
This is a call. When you hear the gospel, the Spirit ignites your soul with interest, desire, conviction of sin, and leads you to God to believe. A lot of people hear the gospel call and say, no thanks. Others hear the gospel call and they're like, I I am a sinner. I do need to be redeemed. That's the calling that those whom he foreknew, he called, and those whom he called to himself, he is going and justified. And remember, justified, back in chapter 3 and chapter 5, to be justified means not that you're sinless, but that you're righteous. Uh, You have now a righteousness given to you from another. So in other words, and we read in 2 Corinthians 5, for example, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So in Christ, this is the glory of the gospel, in Christ he has taken upon himself as our substitute our sins. So we are forgiven of all of our sins, and all of our guilt and shame have been accounted for. But that perfect righteous life that he lived has now been given to us. So that when we stand before God, we're actually righteous with his robe of righteousness. So those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, it says he glorified. Now, this is a future issue, but it's said in the past tense. And he does that so as to show us the certainty. Do you see the controlling theme through this? It's the same group of people. Those he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. It's all the same people. God is assuring for himself a people. Salvation belongs to God. We say it's a monergistic work. It's a work done by God alone. God is the subject of all those verbs. He's doing all that work. It is a gift to us that this God is going to use all things together for your good, both in foreknowing all the way until that day that you're glorified. You're glorified. He will bring it to bear. So the confidence you have in this second truth, you can be confident that God is going to work out all things. Now listen, this is, don't uh, just pinch yourself, would you? Because nothing in this life works out for good by itself. Right, right? there's a law of science that everything tends towards disorder and everything tends towards chaos and disintegration. Things don't naturally work in themselves. The idea of, well, you just got to have a chin up, you got to have a good attitude, and that's just, you know, that's just, things work out great for us. They don't on their own. God works them out. God is the author of the good that comes out of things working together. This world is bent on ruination and disintegration. It is not towards order and glory other than God's hand moving it. He will work out all things. He is sovereign, and he can. He's sovereign over people. He's sovereign over administrations. He's sovereign over the events of life. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over surprises. He's sovereign over accidents. He's sovereign over all those things. A Christian can never say, nothing good can come out of this. A Christian can't say that. He can work out all things. Now, This is what we know, but this isn't what we may feel. We don't always feel this way. Uh, Oftentimes we're confused, we're we're uncertain. Things are coming at us in different ways. 
C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, it, it's really a book about the, the, yeah, it's a book arguing for the rightness of the Christian faith, and he does it in a very, in a very straightforward manner. But here's what he said. He put it in a parable about building a house. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. He says, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. This is the work of God, working out all things together for good, in, in leading us all the way to glory. You know, it reminded me of... Um, I don't know if it was in Prague, but it was in some European city that Carol and I went to see. It was one of those downtown plots, you know, the center, and they have the tower and the big clock, and the clock has a, a transparent face on it. It has the numbers around the edges, but you can see all the machinery of the clock behind. And it, it, it's got these wheels spinning clockwise. It has other wheels spinning counterclockwise. It has levers up and down. It has pins moving. It, it, it looks like a jumbled bit of chaos and yet it's keeping time god's doing that work you don't always understand what he's doing it doesn't always feel as if he's moving in the right direction but he is remember when uh some most of you know this tommy back 12 or 13 years ago got hit with a baseball it was one of those crazy events in life uh, the school had two baseball fields next to each other and uh, but they weren't properly positioned in the sense that uh, the one outfield of the baseball diamond <clears throat> was really heading into the back of the stands of another field. And so uh, Katie and Tom were watching a softball game looking that way. This field had a batter who really connected on a ball and hit it, and it was a, a huge home run, came all the way into the stands, hit him in the back of the head, knocked him out, and... Uh, and uh, Started a couple of years of a little bit of travail and fear over having seizures and having to pull him out of school and that sort of thing. It, it shouldn't have been there. The next day, the the school co the school coincidentally just put up a net right there. I don't know why that happened the next day, but but you have to think. Okay, they they put it up the next day, but uh, we were forced to ponder about the sovereignty of God and working out all things for the good. Now he's got these seizures and he has to be pulled out of school. We didn't know at the time what was going to happen to him. We didn't know if he would be able to recover, if he would need care. We didn't know. And I remember sharing this with a person, and but we trusted in the sovereignty of God, even in the flight of the ball. And this dear saint was really pushed back on that. He said, I cannot believe that God would be sovereign over the flight of that ball come out of nowhere to hit him in the head like that. And I remember asking, I said, what's the alternative? If God wasn't sovereign, was it an accident? What would God look like if he was surprised? Can you imagine? I mean, God's kingdom doesn't run on surprises. He works all things together for good. Do we know all the good that came out of that? No, I don't. 
I trust thy will. I know it has changed us. It has wounded us. It has made us more compassionate and gentle. It made us more like Christ, I think, in many ways. Was it easy? No, of course not. Uh, but, but all things work together for good for those who are called. So that's our confidence that God's working. But secondly, uh, God's plan is going to meet its end. I want to make this point to you quickly, and then I'll, I'll just ask you a final question. Uh, God's plan is coming to his certain end. You notice that when he says we're conformed to the image of the Son, so that he'll be first among many brothers. You see a little glimmer of what God's intention is to create a people for himself surrounding his son. That was his intention. Now, this is not going to be news to some of you. That was always God's intention. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply because he's always wanted a people for himself. That's the goal of God, to create a people that would enjoy him and that would find their greatest pleasure in him, and that he would enjoy them. That was the pleasure and the purpose of God. It was thwarted by Adam and Eve, kind of. But then he raises up Noah. Interestingly, he gives them the same creational mandate, be fruitful and multiply. That ends as a dumpster fire in the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. But God's not finished. His plan isn't going to be ruined. He then calls Abraham, and he says, you're going to have more descendants than the stars are in the sky. And he then calls Abraham. But the people of Israel was just a litany of failures until his son came. A son of Abraham and a son of God comes. And what does he do? The first thing he does in ministry, he says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he immediately what? Begins to call people into the kingdom. God's plan will not be ruined. It won't be thwarted. It won't be stopped. He will have a people for himself. And so Jesus Christ comes. And the difference with Christ's kingdom is it builds on his shoulders. And he's secured it by his own blood. This is the nature of the gospel, that he has died for our sin so that we might be made righteous and be given the spirit that we will be completed. That's why Jesus says, not one of those given to me will I lose. He will have his family. And the Christian is going to be part of it. You can't ruin it. It's amazing. The kindness of God. But... This is not a universal call to be confident. This is a call to those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Are you called according to his purpose? Do you love God? When I talk about loving God, uh, being called doesn't mean you believe him. Loving God doesn't mean you simply believe him. Uh, This love isn't kind of a, a sentimental, emotional, I feel close with him sometimes. This love is not... It's not an intellectual. Well, I understand all the you know, components of, of orthodox doctrine. This love isn't even a dutiful thing where I, I'm trying to do all that I can do like a soldier to his commanding officer. There may, be, there may be perfect obedience there, but there sure a lot of times isn't love. No, no. For those who love God, the word I would use for love is more devotional. Do you... Do you cherish God? Not just what he does for us, but who he is. Uh, Do you prize him? Do you revere him? Do you value him? Do you look to Christ and love his person or just his stuff? For those who love God, this is where you have to just take your own soul to task here. 
You know, this promise is given to those who love him and are called by him. It is interesting that he doesn't say for those who believe in him. He could have said that. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this point. He says, I believe that Paul had a special reason for using the term love rather than the term believing at this point. One of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately if we really love God or not is our reaction to adversity. There are many people who, when trials and tribulations arise, they give up. They feel as if they've been let down. It would be an indication. It would be one measurement as to do you love God? Because when adversity comes, when he's working all things out for good, and it's painful, can you still say, I love him? To whom else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. He will be the one to save. So, so, so folks, in this world we are weakened. Uh, the Spirit, we are promised by, by God that the Spirit will pray for us. I'm asking you to believe that and, and that the Father will work his purposes even through these periods of weakness. You may be in them now. I pray that you would be strengthened by it. Uh, if you're not in them now, you will be ultimately in them. It's the mercy of God. And I'd ask you uh, to love him in the midst of it. Let's take a moment now and just silently perhaps confess or ask for grace or even ask for faith to believe this. And then I'll close this in just a moment.